Let's pray. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in Your your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. For years, I have always looked forward to Easter more than any other time of year. Easter is a celebration of the greatness of God's love for sinful human beings like me. God sent Jesus Christ here to earth with the express purpose of dying on the cross and being a sin offering for sinners. God poured out the full measure of His infinitely holy wrath upon Jesus because Jesus went to the cross to receive the full penalty that we deserve. And even though I would not be born for another 2,000 years, when Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. All my sins, my sins uh, that I had committed earlier in my life, the sins that I have committed most recently, even those future sins that I am yet to commit, were all paid for by Jesus on the cross. And my salvation was fully secured. Jesus was taken down from the cross uh, that Friday afternoon and He was laid in a burial cave. A great stone was rolled in front of it and a Roman guard was tasked with making sure that no one came to steal the body of Jesus. Jesus had claimed publicly that He would rise from the dead. So the authorities wanted to make certain that His body remained there in the grave. And there His body remained until that Sunday morning just before daybreak. And as I was telling the young children, a great earthquake shook the area and an angel of the Lord descended to the burial cave and rolled that stone away. After he rolled the stone away, he hopped up on the, the, uh, the stone and uh, was sitting there. The Gospel of Matthew says that the angel's appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were so filled with fear that they fainted. We read this morning at the sunrise service about how Jesus then appeared to Mary Magdalene. He appeared to the rest of the disciples later that day and then to over 500 others over the next 40 days. His resurrection testified to the certainty of the salvation that He had secured on the cross. His resurrection displayed that He had conquered death and hell. His resurrection signified that He had purchased life after death. His resurrection secured our standing before God. Romans chapter 4, verse 25 says, Jesus was delivered, He was delivered up on the cross for our trespasses 
and He was raised for our justification. So Easter Sunday is well worthy of being looked, um, being looked forward to and being celebrated. But I have an admission. I have recently become disgruntled with the Easter celebrations. Not because of the commercialization of Easter with the Easter bunnies and the candies. I rather like the candies that come with Easter, especially those mellow uh, rabbits that you can get. Um, but that is not why I am disgruntled. I am disgruntled because the yearly celebration of Easter, the yearly celebration of the resurrection, gives the impression that Christ's resurrection is only relevant for one weekend out of the year. Nothing could be further from the truth. We live in a world where Jesus Christ is risen from the dead. That is the most significant fact in the whole world. It means that our life has purpose. It means that there are overarching ethical standards and norms that govern humanity. And those ethical standards, those laws from God are for our good. It means that there is life after death. It means that there will also be a judgment day for all people. It means that we need not die in our sins and spend eternity under the judgment of God. Rather, it means that we can experience a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And most importantly, The resurrection of Jesus Christ means that Jesus Christ is the supreme Lord and the only Savior of of mankind. He is the risen Lord today. He is the risen Lord tomorrow. He is the risen Lord next week, next month. He is the risen Lord forever. Our text this morning comes from Acts chapter 2. And uh, William began reading uh, in the middle of that first sermon, and um, or in the middle of that sermon. And this sermon was actually the first sermon that was ever preached uh, after Jesus rose from the dead. For seven weeks after Jesus' death, Jesus' followers had been laying low. Uh, they were undoubtedly worried that the Jewish authorities, having crucified Jesus, would also be looking to destroy His followers. But when, when Jesus poured out His Holy Spirit upon those believers, and those believers were in Jerusalem, they were emboldened. They were empowered to testify publicly about the resurrection of Jesus Christ in that very city where Jesus was unjustly put to death. And to add to the danger, the Holy Spirit emboldened them at the height of the festival of Shavuot, or as we know it, the festival of weeks. The festival of weeks is one of the three great uh, festivals in the Jewish religion. Tens of thousands of Jews were jammed into the city of Jerusalem. As the crowds gathered, 
And these Christians were out there preaching about Jesus. They began to gather around these Christians. And then Peter stood up and began to preach. And this is the same Peter that only seven weeks earlier had denied Jesus three times before the rooster crowed. But now he has been transformed. Listen again to verses 22 through 24. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What happened to Peter's timidity? What happened to Peter's fear? What accounts for this amazing transformation? He well knows that Jesus is alive. That is what accounts for this transformation. He has spoken to Jesus many times over the past uh, 40 days since the resurrection. And now Peter knows that Jesus has ascended into heaven and is seated at the Father's right hand. He knows that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords who rules over all nations and all peoples. And he further knows that Jesus has given all authority to the church that the church might make disciples. And so he boldly stands up to preach because he knows that no one will be able to harm him without Jesus' permission. And because Christ is risen from the dead, Peter's whole sermon is about Jesus Christ. Truth be told, every Christian sermon is about Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul said, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. There's always a temptation to reduce Christianity to another form of self-helpism. And what passes for much of Christian preaching is nothing more than pop psychology with a little bit of Jesus sprinkled about. Christian preaching always deals with the ultimate issues regarding God, regarding righteousness, and regarding His salvation. And to know God, and to be righteous, and to possess His salvation only comes through Jesus Christ exclusively. Christian preaching certainly deals with these other issues. How to know God's will, how to be a good spouse, how to treat others well. But it always does so within the context of these ultimate issues. And these ultimate issues always, always, always center in Jesus Christ alone. The first Christian sermon by the Apostle Peter is fixated on Jesus Christ. Peter 
preaches Christ. He preaches Jesus' life and death. He preaches Jesus' resurrection. In verse 22, he reminded the crowd that Jesus' ministry was punctuated by many mighty works, by many uh, miraculous wonders and signs. Many in that great crowd had witnessed these miracles with their own eyes. They had been there for the other festivals. Uh, Others maybe were permanent citizens of Jerusalem or had lived in Galilee as Jesus was carrying on His ministry. And as faithful Jews, they came to these festivals. And Jesus had been coming to these festivals, undoubtedly. Um... Most here in this crowd had been in Jerusalem seven weeks earlier uh, to celebrate the Passover. And that was the exact same time that Jesus was unjustly convicted, nailed to the cross, and crucified. In fact, many in this crowd undoubtedly were part of the crowds that gathered in front of Pontius Pilate and were crying out at the top of their voices, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! Therefore, Peter quite boldly declared in verse 23, This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and you crucified and killed Him by the hands of lawless men. But did you also hear in that verse, that Peter would not allow that any human being would ultimately be able to exercise this kind of power over Jesus. That no human being could hold Jesus' life and death in their hands. Jesus was delivered up to the cross not by any human being, but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. The Jews had only done what God had decided beforehand should happen. God sent Jesus to the cross. God so loved this world of sinful human beings like me and like you that He sent His only begotten Son. God sent Jesus Christ here into this world. God sent Jesus Christ to the cross to purchase our salvation. God sent Him so that He could justly forgive us of our sins. If God simply overlooked our sins without paying for them, He would be unjust. It would be unworthy of God. God simply cannot be unjust. And so Jesus came. He stood in our place. He was willingly stretched out on that cross. And He paid our penalty in our place. This verse, with His assertion that God sent Jesus to the cross according to His predetermined plan, it brings us face to face with one of the most sobering teachings in all of Scripture. The Bible 
very forthrightly tells us over and over again that nothing happens unless God has predetermined it. Your hardships and your blessings have been predetermined by God. Even your willingness to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and your willingness to entrust yourself to Him have been predetermined by God. And those who die apart from Christ and therefore die in their sins, that too has been predetermined by God. In other words, God is not up in heaven biting His fingernails in anxiety um, over whether you will choose Him or reject Him. John chapter 6, Jesus said, All that the Father gives to Me will come to Me. And whoever comes to Me, I will never cast out. And if someone was unclear about what He was saying there in John chapter 6, a few verses later in John chapter 6, Jesus said, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Your faith ultimately comes from God. Your trust in Jesus Christ ultimately comes from God. We are so sinful. We are so willingly rebellious that we would never come to God. We would die in our sins before we would. But God in His mercy chooses some. The only reason any of us are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ is His Mercy alone. Yes, you should. Yes, you are required to believe. Yes, you are responsible to believe. But the truth of the matter is, and it goes all the way through Scripture, you would not unless God has first chosen you. So what does all this mean? It means you need to humble yourself before God. Don't treat Him like a heavenly bellhop waiting to serve your whims and your needs. He is the Lord. You are not. He is the Savior. You cannot save yourselves. If you are unwilling to trust yourself to Jesus, it is not because you're smarter than anybody else, not because you are more sophisticated than anybody else. It is because God has not yet decided to draw you to Himself. What if He never draws you? Humble yourself and cry out to Him for mercy. Humble yourself and ask Him to draw you to Himself. You know, this is what many in the crowd did at the conclusion of Peter's sermon. Uh, in the interest of time, I skipped over the Scripture proofs there in, in uh, Acts chapter 2 that Peter gives. He gives 
Scripture proofs from Psalm 16, Psalm 132, Psalm 110. He was speaking to a very biblically literate um, uh, crowd of people. Uh, They knew their psalms. And uh, he offers this as proof and uh, explains these psalms in light of Christ. And it convinces the people. And so, at the conclusion of his sermon, you can see that it makes an impact. Verse 36 is the concluding line of his sermon. He says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Again, he's aiming right at their heart. Whom you crucified. This person you crucified is both Lord and Christ. When the people heard that, they were cut to the heart and they humbled themselves. In verse 37, 3,000 of them cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles and said, Brothers, what shall we do? It's telling that they did not ask, How can we be saved? But rather, they cried out, what shall we do? They may have felt themselves beyond salvation. Chrysostom tells us. They, after all, had been crying out uh, seven weeks earlier for Jesus to be crucified. Put yourselves in their place for one moment and think of yourself being there before Pontius Pilate. Crucify this man! Crucify him! Give us this robber and this criminal Barabbas and crucify Jesus! And then seven weeks later, you hear this sermon and you are convinced that this person whom you had a hand in putting to death was the long-expected Messiah who was the Lord of heaven and earth. In other words, they were completely broken. There's no attempt to evade their guilt or or shift their blame. They see the magnitude for their crime against God and they condemn themselves for it. And they say, brothers, what should we do? They may have felt like they were uniquely evil and sinful and therefore beyond redemption. But no one can advance in evil beyond Christ's ability to redeem. So then we read in verse 41, So those who received His Word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. These people were not beyond Christ's ability to redeem, even though they had cried out for Christ unjust crucifixion. Truth be told, everyone who is a Christian has followed the same path to Christ. Salvation begins with the conviction of sin. Before one can receive Jesus Christ as Savior, one must believe that they are a sinner and therefore lost. There are no shortcuts. There are no no side routes around coming to terms with your sinfulness. I have known many who want Jesus, 
but they want their sin too. I've known others who want Jesus, but they're too prideful to to admit their own sin and to own their own sin. And then they get frustrated and they come to me and they say, my relationship with God is not meaningful. I keep trying, but I don't really make any progress. Well, the heart of the issue is their relationship with with God is not meaningful because their relationship with God is not real. Jesus came to save sinners. Not the righteous who have little need of a Savior. I realize that I've grabbed hold of a fire hose this morning and I opened it up full blast. But I am compelled to have us understand why why Easter is relevant all year. Why Easter is always relevant to all of you and to me. We need a Savior And we have the only Savior in Jesus Christ. And as verse 36 tells us, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Christ. Trust Him. If you've never known Him, cry out to Him in mercy that He would draw you to Himself. Let's go to Him in prayer. Lord Jesus, I do pray on this glorious Easter morning that You would help us to remember that we serve a risen Savior. That we serve a Savior who is both Lord and Christ. That He is always at Your right hand making intercession for us. That He is always at Your right hand working in us that He is always at Your right hand uh, looking after us. God, I pray that You would help us all to continually humble ourselves um, under Him and to entrust ourselves to Him fully and completely. We thank You that You sent Him in our place. And therefore, we pray in His name. Amen.